is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining me today from Zurich for a very special episode of the podcast is Jungian analyst and author, Dr. Murray Stein. He holds a Master of Divinity from Yale University, a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, and a Ph.D. in Religion and Psychological Studies from the University of Chicago. Dr. Stein was the founding member and first president of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts, one of the founding members of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, and is an honorary member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. He served as president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology from 2001 to 2004, and for the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland, from 2008 to 2012. He also served as editor and publisher at Chiron Publications from 1983 to 2014. Currently, Dr. Stein is a training and supervising analyst at the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich. He is the author of many books and articles, including In Midlife, A Jungian Perspective, Transformation, Emergence of the Self, The Bible as Dream, a Jungian interpretation, and, along with Dr. Thomas Arts, is the editor of the three-volume series Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions, published by Chiron. His book, Jung's Map of the Soul, an Introduction, published by Open Court in 1998, is currently a number one bestseller due to its recognition by the band BTS, and it is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Saturday, March 23rd, 2019, through the magic of Skype. We are here today, Dr. Stein, to talk about your book, Jung's Map of the Soul, an introduction, because of an upcoming CD that's going to be released on April 12th, by a similar name. It's called Map of the Soul Persona, and it's by a South Korean musical group called BTS. And currently, that CD, it's available for pre-order, and it's already the number one bestseller in CDs and vinyl. And your book, Map of the Soul, it was actually released in 1998. But right now, today, it's currently the number one bestseller in Jungian psychology. The book is laid out in nine chapters, and it's a very manageable, it's 192 pages long. And it's been called, quote, the best one volume English language summary of Jung's thought. I know it's been through many printings. My copy is actually from the fifth printing, which was I think in 2003. And I wonder what printing it's on now. Um, we're here today actually to focus on the subject of the persona, which you cover in chapter five, which is titled The Revealed and the Concealed in Relations with Others. Um, the sections, the persona, the two sources of the persona, persona development, the persona's transformations, and finally, integrating persona and shadow. So Jung's map of the soul. 
what is this map that you speak of? What is a map? <laughs> uh, in a sense, my book is a map of Jung's writings <clears throat> uh, about the soul or about the psyche, the self. Um, and a map, of course, isn't the territory. Uh, one uh, needs to make a distinction between maps and what they are mapping. Um, the way I picked up on this idea of introducing Jung's ideas, Jung's uh, psychological theories, uh, using this term map, was that Jung often refers to himself as an explorer or a pioneer. Um, and it's true that he was um, uh, one of the f figures in the early days of the development of psychoanalysis who really blazed new territory, who uh, went into areas of the human mind that, uh, while they weren't totally unknown before uh, his time, uh, looked at them in a in a psychological way, uh, in a modern way, and described them. And uh, so he um, he was a kind of uh, map maker, if you if you will, of the territories that he discovered and explored. And so I picked up on that notion to talk about his theories of the human mind, of the human self. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make a big distinction between mind and self, because for Jung, um, it's all one. It's one substance, mind, body, self. It all belongs to uh, a single um, unitary substance. And so there are aspects of, of the uh, self that we talk about uh, with terms like uh, persona and ego and um, shadow and so on. Right. So let's start off by defining persona. Jung used the word persona to, um, to talk about a um, aspect of human functioning that we're all very familiar with. Um, you can think of it as uh, imitation or based on our ability to uh, mimic and to reflect what we see and are exposed to. Um, the persona, the term persona comes from Latin, um, and it's a reference to the mask that actors wore in the theater. So there's something theatrical about uh, the persona. It's um, a way, uh, in a way, it's um, our form of personal theater when we present ourselves at a party or in public, um, we're playing a role. We're all actors in the theater of life, as Shakespeare said long ago. And so the persona is our way of presenting ourselves um, to others, to, to the public, to uh, even in intimate situations. Uh, we're playing a role as, um, as lover, friend, partner, husband, wife, father, so on. These are all establish social roles that we learn as we grow up. We learn how to play them by uh, observing, and then we reflect them, we mimic them. We have these things in our brain called mirror neurons. Uh, we mirror the world around us, and we pick it up. And so we use uh, uh, the, um, the, the forms and patterns that we observe around us to uh, function in the social world. One thinks of the persona as uh, the clothes you wear or the skin on your body. It's the interface between you and others uh, in, the, in the social world around you. 
And do we have more than one persona? Well, think about it. Um, if I hear uh, my son talking to a friend, and then I hear him talking to uh, his teacher, and then I hear him talking to me, um, he's not three different people, but there are three different uh, uh, personas that are involved. In one, he is a friend or a lover. In another one, he is a student, uh, or he might be a teacher. His, his age is now sufficient uh, numbers to, that he can assume the role of teacher. So, yes, we have we have different personas. Doesn't make us different people in different situations. But even our voice changes, our our mannerisms change depending on who we're talking to. And would you say that this is natural? This is normal. This totally, is how we function in the world. This isn't wrong. Totally natural. Um, it's uh, and it's natural in the sense that we pick it up without thinking about it. We do it uh, instinctually. We do it automatically. We do it as children. Smile at a child, smiles back at you, uh, and the the, uh, the the child begins to play the role of father or mother, or play doctor with somebody, or you know, you learn these roles as you grow up. It's automatic. It's absolutely natural. So then, how do we know who we are if we are different in different situations? Well, in a sense, we're all of these. Um, this was one of the great, um, I, I guess you could call it discoveries or insights um, of Jung and the psychoanalysts uh, around him, that we aren't simple. We aren't just who we think we are, who we know we are. We're much more than that. We have a conscious and an unconscious part. And we do things um, uh, partly consciously and uh, enact certain roles partly consciously and partly unconsciously. So who are we? Uh, it's a very complicated question. We're all of this. So when Jung talked about the self, for instance, the self is a complexity. It's, it's made up of many different features and aspects. And you put them all together, you could say that's who you are or that's what you are might be easier to think of what you are than who you are. The who question goes to to your core in a way. If you look at yourself and you ask, who am I? And the Buddhists say, you know, what was your name before you were named? Or who were you before you were born? You get into a, a kind of mystery about identity um, that lies at the core of the individual. And it's very hard to answer that question because uh, throughout life, we play many different roles. We are different people, in a sense, when we're children, adolescents, midlifers, old people, uh, old wise people. We're, in a sense, we're different and we're not. So that who that runs through the whole story um, is quite a mysterious thing. And it's hard to answer who or what that is. Is that your name? When someone calls your name, is that who you are, you respond to it as though you were, but um, the name was also given to you. Uh, and names change. You get married, you change your name. Women used to, uh, their family name anyway. Sometimes they change their name for um, theatrical purposes or publicity purposes or whatever. So the name is a tricky thing too. But generally, uh, we're very attached to our names. If somebody calls your name, uh, you feel like you, you're being called. It's you that's being called. It's you respond to it as though 
that's who you are. They have called you. So the idea of being called by a voice, being addressed by a voice, calling your name, goes very deep into human experience and identity. You say on page 109, taken psychologically, the persona is a functional complex whose job is both to conceal and to reveal an individual's conscious thoughts and feelings to others. As a complex, the persona possesses considerable autonomy and is not under the full control of the ego. And I think that's a really important point, that we're not doing this consciously, are we? You know, I don't... We have to become conscious of it. Um, These different masks we put on. We're not consciously saying, okay, now I'm going to pick up this mask and put this one on. (laughs) No. You know, I discovered this um, by watching myself on a video one time. And the person I thought I was and who I thought I was showing myself to be isn't at all the person I saw on the video. Um, so I'm unconscious of how I'm coming across. Other people can see it. They can describe it. But when I see it, I can see that there's a difference between how I experience myself and what I think I'm doing and what I look like to other people. So we're quite unconscious of the way we're coming across often. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, that's natural, right? That is normal way to function in the world. It's natural in the sense that we do it automatically. Yes, uh, we don't have to be taught. Now, if you're a professional actor, it's another thing. You assume personas on stage, and uh, you know that you're doing it, and you have to get into the role. Then you learn the role, and a good actor can really get into it to the point that they forget who they are. They put their own identity aside, and they become Iago, or they become uh, Julius Caesar or Cleopatra. In that moment, on stage, they are that role. Peter Sellers said that uh, toward the end of his life, he didn't know what his own voice sounded like anymore. He had played so many roles. He'd lost himself in those roles. So uh, we can become identified with the roles we play, and and I I call that the persona trap, um, that we lose our, our freedom of movement because we're so invested in a certain set of behaviors and manners and positions and social identity that we're quite unfree to be the rest of ourselves. And that creates some problems that we try to work on in psychotherapy if it becomes a bad problem. Mm -hmm. So when we say, well, who are you really, Who, who you truly are? Well, it isn't just one thing. It's many things. We have many faces. Is that what you say? We have many faces, but I do believe we have a center, a core. When Jung talked about the self, for instance, he said it's the center and the circumference. The circumference is all-inclusive. It's all the pieces, all the parts. But what is that at the center? Um, He sometimes wrote about the bindu point. Uh, This comes from uh, um, Buddhism. The bindu point is the center of a mandala, and it's the center of creativity and the center of energy, and um, and it's nameless. Um, sometimes people, when they draw their mandalas, they put something there. Jung put a star in the middle of his mandala, um, but it's something transcendent, and um, 
and you can't really name it. It's a God, <laughs> God figure. It's your personal God figure, the God within, the Buddha within. If we're identifying with only one of the masks we wear, then would you say we're not in touch with the self, that we've sort of uh, abandoned it? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, optimal is that you can play the role consciously, more or less consciously, without losing yourself in it and without identifying with it. You know, I was quite impressed by uh, Kim Nam Jun, RM as he's called. The, um, I, I guess he's the leader of the um, BTS group when he spoke at the United Nations um, Generation Unlimited speech, uh, the speech he made, I watched a couple of times on YouTube. And what impressed me about that was that he kept the distinction carefully between who he was as a boy growing up in a small village outside of Seoul, Korea, and who he is publicly and famously now, uh, you know, a star in the firmament of uh, entertainment, of the entertainment world. And, um, you know, he, if he were to identify with that role, totally, he would lose contact with himself, with, with the boy he was, with the, with the human being that he is. He would be ungrounded. And when that happens, um, then you're out of contact with the self. You're, you're, and you're terribly vulnerable to what other people think and say about you. Because once you enter into the public domain, uh, everything depends on their admiration, their approval, their, their uh, lifting you up uh, to the pedestal. And uh, when they stop doing that, you would have nothing. You'd be empty. And then you would have to go on a quest for the self and uh, find your link again to the, to the core of yourself. But that core of yourself usually is best discovered through uh, going back and tracing your history and looking into your childhood and your heritage and your family. Um, and then even beyond that to a kind of archetypal, as we say, archetypal or transcendent uh, sense of self that underlies everything. And just to give briefly a little bit of background on BTS, there are seven members of the band. They're all men. I'm not going to call them boys because they range in age from 21 to 26. And the gentleman you were just referring to, RM, he is the translator of the group. I believe he's the only one who speaks English. He is 24 years old. He is so articulate gave such an eloquent speech at the very Atlanta. moving speech very yes. very touching yeah. yes it was and it was in september of last year and i will put a link to that on the episode page and just a couple more things they were the most retweeted celebrities in the world in 2017 and 2018 and in october they were featured on the cover of time magazine their international edition as the next generation leaders. So it has been just a whirlwind for both you, Dr. Stein and myself on Twitter this past week of all the attention that our tweets have been getting by the BTS army, which is what their fan base is known as. Well, there were some questions that came in from the fan base that I would, I would uh, like to address if you could 
um, read them off to me, Laura. Maybe we could go go on with that. Yes. So the first question I have here from Twitter, this is from Cookie Crumbles. She asks, I would love an open-ended question to Dr. Stein about how he first became aware of BTS's interest in and focus on his and Jung's work and what he would most want to convey to people meeting Jung and the concept of persona for the first time. Well, let me start with how I met BTS. Um, at my age, I'm, I'm quite out of touch with that post-millennial or millennial generation, although I have grandchildren in that age group. Uh, so I hadn't heard anything about BTS. I live in Switzerland. We're sort of out of the way when it comes to uh, popular culture here, and I'm very involved in the Jungian world, and I don't know how many Jungian analysts worldwide have um, know about BTS, although I've asked some of my colleagues, and a few of them uh, have uh, acknowledged that they uh, have patients who are fans of BTS. But it came to my attention from a Japanese student uh, at the school in Zurich who told me, uh, or who asked me, did you know that your book is being recommended on the website of the BTS um, group. And I asked him who that was, and he told me I, they're very well known in Japan. They have a huge following there. And so I Googled it and looked at it, and sure enough, my book, uh, Jung's Map of the Soul, was listed along with Damien by Hermann Hesse and The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And I felt in very good company. My goodness, how did I get there? Um, and then I have discovered later that they have taken quite an interest in Jung's work, that Jung's name is mentioned occasionally in some of their songs. And then suddenly I was told, um, I guess a week or so ago, that um, their new album is titled Map of the Soul Persona. And of course that floored me. Uh, and I then um, was contacted by ARMY, the fan group, uh, uh, who discuss their, uh, the meaning of their lyrics and so on. I've become a little more familiar with them. And um, I'm, I'm, uh, I must say I'm thrilled to, uh, that they're taking an interest in Jung. And, and in my book, um, uh, that, uh, that Jung's, that Jung's um, message and Jung's vision is being transmitted to people who otherwise would never hear about him or pay any attention to what he has to offer. Because I think... What Jung has to offer in this century is um, is a vision of um, wholeness and and a vision of integrity and um, human rights uh, that uh, you know it, it would be so valuable for people all over the world to come into contact with and to study and to uh, integrate into their daily life. Um, Jung's message is a very hopeful one that, uh, you know, that our unconscious is uh, a spark of light. It's uh, creative. It has much to offer us uh, if we pay attention to it. Uh, it gives us inner guidance. Um, and really his emphasis on the, um, on the sacredness of the individual and the importance of the individual to take responsibility for his or her own life and to take responsibility for the planet and, and for the world 
I think is a message that uh, we really need today. And I, that's what I hope would come across, that um, we need to be strong individuals. We need to be able to name ourselves and find ourselves and to take responsibility for the world around us. Yes, very well said. The next question is from Ghost Lore, who asks, what do we do with this knowledge? Is the end game just acknowledgement, or should we look past that and strive towards embracing the shadow? And we hadn't talked about shadow yet. It's a very good question. It's a question that's often answered. What do we do once we have um, taken a look at the shadow and, and begun to discover it? Number one, I would say we're never done with the shadow. Uh, there is no end game. Uh, the shadow will always be with us, no matter our place in life, our age. Uh, the shadow accompanies us. The shadow is our uh, is our unconscious narcissism, egotism, selfishness, um, all the things that envy, uh, the things that uh, have been named and numbered traditionally as the deadly sins and so on. We have them. And we have them always, uh, and we can't get rid of them. And we shouldn't try to identify with them, but we should become aware of them. Uh, so the work of becoming uh, aware of the shadow is the beginning uh, of a process of transformation. Where does that lead? I guess that's your question. Where do you arrive at if you acknowledge your shadow deeply, see it, uh, and um, uh, take responsibility for uh, its behavior, it's a part of you, uh, what then? Well, a lot of times we don't see it until it's too late to do very much about it. Um, we make the mistakes and then we look back and in retrospect we see, oh, I thought I was doing this, but actually I was also doing that. Um I thought I was helping the person, but really I was helping myself more than I was helping them. Um, uh, I criticized them because I thought they were wrong, but actually I was envious of them. Uh, that kind of thing. So what do you do about that once you see it? Well, you might go and apologize to the person, uh, come clean and say um, you, you acknowledge what you did and said was only partial or had other aspects to it, um, uh, to make amends, as we say, to people you've hurt or injured by your shadowy behavior and attitudes. Uh, so making amends is one important thing. There's a movement in the United States now called reparations for people who are descended from the slaves that were taken in Africa and brought to America. And that would be a kind of recognition and, and uh, uh uh, taking responsibility uh, for those actions that were committed in the name of uh, commercial interests and so on. Uh, so making amends is one thing, but there's another very important step after that, and that is uh, what the, in, in uh, Jewish life is called tikkun olan. Tikkun olan is repairing the world. And so you make a turn from uh, the world serving you and your interests to you're serving the world and its interests to the best of your ability. 
and you will always still make mistakes and you will always still carry a shadow, but your attitude changes from self-interest to uh, uh, responsibility for yourself, taking care of yourself, very important, your health, your um, your spirituality and your body and your whole self, but also taking care of the world around you, ecologically, politically, socially, and so forth. So that uh, becoming aware of the shadow is the beginning of a transformation. And the end game is that you live a different life uh, without thinking that you'll ever be without shadow, but you're on a different path and you're deliberately and consciously on a different path. And that's why exploring the shadow and making it conscious is so critical uh, for psychological development. Yes. And I I want to refer people to page 110 of your book where you say the shadow is a complementary functional complex. It is a sort of counter persona. The shadow can be thought of as a sub-personality who wants what the persona will not allow. I think that is just an excellent definition or explanation, really, of what the shadow is. It's a conflict between the persona and the shadow. The persona usually is the way we want ourselves to receive, be received and seen. And uh, most of us want to be um, you know, noble and good and courageous. And, and we keep the parts of ourselves uh, that aren't like that in the shadow. We deny them, we repress them, we reject them, we stick them away, but it doesn't make them go away. They're still there and they're still active. So there's a, a conflict between the persona and the shadow. Now, the persona expresses itself in the way you dress, uh, and the jewelry you wear, and the clothes you wear, your hair color, your hairstyle, all of that. Uh, if you make a mask of your shadow, how would that look? Uh, it would look very different from the way you normally dress when you go out in, in public or show yourself to other people. Um, think about it. Uh, and be, if you become aware of it, uh, try making a mask or drawing it. People do this in workshops sometimes, mask-making workshops. You know, Discover your shadow and then make a mask of it and enact that role for a while. That helps you to become conscious of it. Um, Jung drew a picture in the Red Book that ex showed his shadow. It's a kind of sneaky fellow, um, you know, um, looks like a thief or, uh, you know, not a very attractive person. Jung was a very noble gentleman. He dressed very well in the English style and uh, presented him as a, himself as a scientist and a doctor and a, a great man. Uh, but his shadow looked quite different. Um, and so he um, actually painted a picture of him in, in the Red Book. And that's a way to come in contact with the shadow and uh, uh, keep, keep the shadow uh, aspect in mind. Now, there's also such a thing as counterculture. You know, we um, dress for culture, but some people take another turn with persona, and that is to become countercultural. And so when you see somebody with... Uh, very uh, um, evident tattoos on their body or piercings uh, or their hair styled in a certain way, you immediately know uh, that they are not part of the mainstream culture. You know that they're identified with another aspect of culture that we call counterculture or 
a protest group or a movement or something like that. Um, that's a different persona, but it's still a persona. Now, what kind of shadow does that hide? Mm-hmm. Um, every persona has something that's left out. Um, probably their their conventional good boy, good girl parts are in the shadow. That's who they really don't want to be. That's what they repress at all costs. Um, but you you might see it in their dreams or in their fantasies sometimes. They tend to project it onto other people as we do with the shadow and attack them. Uh, all those goody two-shoes, those nicey-nice people can't bear them, can't stand them. Well, that's the shadow of the counterculture. And why would somebody or how would somebody get to that point? What, what would bring somebody to join the counterculture? Yeah. Well, it could be that your friends are going that way. You want to be like them. It's mimicking a lot of it. Uh, it's cool. You want to be in the cool group. Uh, so get a tattoo. And the cool group happens to be countercultural. They're, they're the protest group in the school. You know, they, they're not the, not the good students. They hang out uh, after school and smoke cigarettes together in the playground, things like that. So part of it is joining a group, joining a gang. You want to be a part of it because your friends are a part of it. Uh, another thing might be um, that you've had some bad experiences with with uh, people who represent the collective and the mainstream that you feel rejected, and you're going to protest it. You're going to shove it in their face. You're going to tell them who you are, and and you know it's a kind of curse word uh, at them, uh, walking down the street with orange hair and piercings and so on, Bonhofstrasse and in Zurich, uh, you're thumbing your nose at the bankers and the, and the jewelry store keepers and all of that. Um, so it's, um, you know, it has probably personal reasons, but I think a lot of it's collective too. The tattoo parlors are very popular nowadays because it's it actually has become almost mainstream uh, in, in parts of the world. I don't see any tattoos on the BTS members. I don't know if they're hiding them or they just, that hasn't caught on in Korea. I don't know either. Okay. The next question is from Meow Meow MF, who asks, apparently dreams feature prominently in Jungian psychology. Do you have a quick and dirty introduction to its relation to one's persona? Quick and dirty clothes. (laughs) <laughs> it's the clothes you wear in dreams and they play an important role in some dreams uh, I work with dreams a lot you know I'm a Jungian analyst and I see clients uh, regularly throughout the week almost every day and they bring me their dreams and um, a good percentage of them uh, do uh, feature or include uh, some um imagery of clothing. Now, it can be that you're not wearing any clothing in a dream. When you're without clothing, you're without a persona. You feel very exposed. You feel naked, as we say. You feel vulnerable uh, and embarrassed. And yet, if that occurs in a dream, depends a little bit on how you feel about it in the dream. Uh, I've observed series of dreams uh, in which the person uh, over the course of time, gradually becomes more and more comfortable being naked in public. And we see that as um, as a step toward what we call individuation, that is more self-acceptance, acceptance of yourself just as you are without any clothes on, without any pretense, and you can love yourself as you are. It's another theme in the uh, BTS repertoire, 
um, their music is very much about loving yourself and the, the speech that was made is about love, self-love and self-acceptance. I think there's a, a big problem with shame feelings among a lot of young people that they aren't good enough, they aren't uh, cool enough, they don't look right. And suicide is a is a possibility and, and you know, almost an epidemic in some areas of the world because of that anorexia, self-starving, those kinds of things. So this ability to love yourself as you are without the persona or whatever the social class you're in or color of your skin and so on is very important for your mental health and your well-being. Now, what would you say to those people right now? You have their ear. What would you say to encourage how how do we give ourselves enough room to accept ourselves as we are, to love ourselves? And I think I think personally we have to do that for each other too. Yes, absolutely. I think it if somebody mirrors uh, love to you, it's much easier for you to love yourself. If you have a, a loved one, a friend, um, a partner, a parent, um, a child, a dog, uh, a pet, you know, um, some someone or something that shows you affection and acceptance, it's much easier to accept yourself. That's at least a first stage, a first step. I'll tell you, I was very impressed by a person who told me this some years ago. Uh, she was a woman in her 40s, I think, at the time. And she said her turning point was, and she had this problem in her youth, that she was too thin, too skinny, and felt awkward, and not didn't have enough curves and all that. Uh, but her turning point was one day she looked in the mirror in the bathroom. She had just taken a bath, didn't have any clothes on. She looked in the mirror, and she felt affection for herself. She felt love for herself at what she saw in the mirror. And I thought, well, that's self-mirroring. Now you can do it for yourself. You don't need others to, to, to give that to you. You can give it to yourself. That's a very high stage, uh, advanced stage of self-acceptance when you can give it to yourself. It starts with others loving you. Your mother as an infant loves you, bonds with you if she does. Very bad if she doesn't. Um, you have to find it somewhere else. Maybe, you know, some of these kids who join gangs do it because that's where they find love and acceptance. Um, and and so this, uh, the ability to give it to yourself, though, to appreciate yourself um, is, uh, is what we want to get to. And I think uh, uh, RM says that in his talk, too. He says he's working on it. Uh, I like that. He did, he doesn't claim that he's arrived there. He's 24 years old. It takes a long time to get there. But it's something you work on every day of your life. You know, you can say self-affirmation. Some people do that. But uh, think some positive thoughts about yourself. Now, that doesn't do the job. But gradually, uh, and by uh, accepting your shadow and, and your faults and your failings and your dark side and all of that, uh, accepting it without approving it, without uh, acceptance doesn't mean enacting further and, and going with it. It means looking at it and taking responsibility for it, but accepting it as a part of your life, your history, flaws and all. And that self-acceptance is um, really going beyond the persona. 
The persona in dreams is the clothing. You know, if you change clothing, you change from a blue dress to a red dress. What does that mean? Well, you're going from a thinking to a feeling uh, persona, maybe. You're going to change your self-expression. Uh, or you wear a piece of jewelry that says something special uh, in a dream. Um, um, you know, a diamond ring indicates something. Uh, what you wear is... Um, the persona uh, revealed in in your dreams. And going back to what I had said about loving yourself and loving everybody around you is accepting other people the way they are. I work at that every day is that everybody's different. Everybody looks different. Everybody is who they are. And to just love them for who they are and you, yes. don't have to, you don't have to like it or or be that too but love and respect people for their differences and that they are being their unique selves you know what we what we often do is um especially when we first see somebody say you see them on the street you categorize them they belong to a group uh, oh, they're African, they're Asian, they're Chinese, they're, they're man, they're woman, they're child. They, they, you put them in a group, and then it depends a bit on how, what you think of that group and how you feel about that group. Um, and that's where racism comes in. You know, you don't like that group of people, so you don't like that individual. You react immediately. And studies have been done on, on our unconscious, uh, immediate uh, reaction to difference uh, we become conscious of it later, but you react to it immediately. Then you become conscious of it. You might say something, you might not. But when you become conscious of it, then you can begin to do something about it. Tikkun uh, olam, start repairing the world right there. And to see beyond the group to the individual, if you sit down on the bench with that person, start talking to them, hear their history, hear their struggles, hear their life, listen to them, you'll have a very different impression of them after a while. Um, so then you begin seeing them as an individual, you begin seeing their soul, you don't just see their appearance. And um, people have, have uh, therapists, for instance, have gone into prisons and talked to hardened criminals. And people have done horrible things, and you would think they're the worst people in the world. And what they come to find out is, Inside, they're soft, they're vulnerable, they have a history, they're, they did what they did for a reason, you know, a psychological reason. Uh, you, can, you can feel close to them, you can't approve of what they did, they killed or murdered somebody or whatever, but you can feel close to them and you don't judge them and condemn them, uh, you understand them, uh, because you've experienced their soul, you've experienced their interiority, who they really are. And we rarely get to that place with people. Socially, you don't, you know, it's a few words at a party or something. Um, with your family, you might, but a lot of families are pretty tight-lipped about, you know, sharing much. When you open up and can talk to somebody and hear their story, then your, your ability to accept them increases exponentially. You'll, you'll, you'll find yourself amazed at the change in your attitude once you know who they are. 
I don't think we really define the word soul, and it brings me to this next question by Hibba, who I think Hibba and I were having an exchange on Twitter, and I mentioned that we are all multifaceted. And I don't know if this is, I'm sorry, a male or female. So he or she said, so all the sides of this stone are real. You mean all the faces are yourself and we don't have one true personality. And I think we addressed some of that in the beginning, but what would you say is the soul? Well, I'll tell you why I used the word soul in, in the title of my book. I could have used psyche. You know, Jung's map of the psyche he was a psychologist. He describes the inner, the inner world of the psyche. I could have used the word self, which is an all-inclusive, all-encompassing name for the personality. But I chose soul. And that's because of the uh, emotional resonance around soul. That uh, uh, in the English language, at least, the word soul is used uh, to, has been used to um, refer to something sacred in the person, their immortal soul. Traditionally, the soul has been thought of as that part of you, that spark in you that will never die, that's immortal, eternal, will go to another world when your body dies, and so on. I, I'm not using it in that sense. But I'm using it in the sense that when we talk about the psyche and when we interact with other people's psyches in, in an intimate setting and conversation, dialogue, um, we're dealing with something sacred, something very valuable, something special. And so uh, that's what I want to convey with the word soul, that this is uh, that the that the psyche and the self are uh something um, uh, of precious value, high value, and um, not to be tampered with. You don't play around with somebody's soul. You don't abuse somebody's soul. Uh, so it's an attitude we take as psychotherapists, certainly, to um, be very careful uh, in dealing with other people's uh, lives and history and stories and narratives and inner worlds. Um, that's what I meant to convey by the word soul. Now, the rest of this question, are all these facets a part of us? Yes, they are. They're all a part of us, and they all belong. And uh, Jung um, came to that conclusion during his own inner research, uh, during the period when he was working on the Red Book, which has been published now, and you can see all the pictures in there, he started drawing what he called mandalas, circles, with um, with um, many different figures in the circle and divided into four parts and a circumference and a center. And uh, then he discovered that these were, that the, the Indian uh, Hindu name for these, the Buddhist name is mandala, which means a circle of wholeness. And... Um, all uh, the parts of the personality of the psyche, the soul, fit into that mandala in one quadrant or another. In the upper quadrants, there were the spiritual aspects. In the lower quadrants, there were the physical, material, and instinctual aspects. There was a feminine aspect. There was a masculine aspect. 
Uh, and so all the parts, uh, all the features of the psyche that I write about in my book are included in the mandala. And the mandala is your wholeness. That's all-inclusive who you are. All the pieces belong. When you start excluding pieces, they don't go away. They just become unconscious. And then you project them, you lose them, you're, you deprive yourself of part of your your wholeness and your your riches. You just used a word project, and that's another term that we use in Jungian psychology. So just briefly, would you explain what happens when we project something onto someone else? Well, projection, the idea of projection is that you um, place an unconscious part of yourself onto someone else and relate to them as though that's who they were. Uh, there are many examples of this, but just think of a of a, a projector that you have in the back of your head, and it's projecting, um, let's say, uh, the uh, the shadow onto somebody else. Okay, then you see them as a demonic character, um, and uh, you think that's who they are. Well, maybe partly the projection has a hook, as we say, it it fits some aspect of their of their presentation, their persona, but it certainly isn't all of them. And a large part of it is your own um, uh, feelings about them, your own evaluation of them, your own judgment of them. And that comes from within your own inner world, your unconscious psyche, and it's displaced. It's put out there into the world around you. Now, we can't help doing this. Everybody does this. What we can do is try to uh, get some insight or examine the difference between who we thought somebody else was and who they turn out to be when we get to know them better. This happens normally in relationships. You fall in love with somebody and they're perfect. There is nothing wrong with them. They are divine. They're a goddess or a god. And then you get to know them and after six months or so, you start seeing other aspects and you realize what uh, sometimes you realize what a mistake you made. That isn't at all who they are. Or sometimes, oh, that's just a part of them. You can like that part of them, but you don't much like another part of them. So it's a, the projection uh, creates a, a, um, a world, a vision or a, a construction of the world around us that we believe is real. But when we poke into it a little further, we often find we've just made that up. That's, that's our construction. It's not what's really uh, out there and what's really part of the other. So projection, again, is a very natural, normal uh, part of uh, psychological functioning. It's an advanced stage of work and individuation consciousness to begin reeling it back and seeing that these are parts of yourself, parts of your own inner world. And then we have a method for working with those aspects of ourselves in another way that we call active imagination, where we take the images that are normally projected outward and we deal with them as inner images and engage them in dialogue and, and work with them and try to integrate them into our own sense of who we are, our wholeness. And the next question is from Dear Moon, who asks, 
Could Dr. Stein briefly touch on the paintings Jung did in the Red Book and how they relate to his theories? I find them intriguing, just as I find the visuals and symbolism in BTS's albums and music videos fascinating to look at. They always tie together. And I don't know if you already covered this, if you wanted to say more about this. Well, I could just say a, a brief word about it, that uh, the paintings that Jung inserted into the Red Book sometimes illustrate um, the text, and sometimes they don't. They have a kind of uh, trajectory of their own. Uh, the paintings were done over a much longer period of time than the text uh, was the, the manuscript for the text was finished, I think, around 1916 or 1918, but the paintings went on into the 1920s. So Jung was painting into the Red Book as he was writing into it, sometimes using the painting to illustrate the writing, and sometimes not. They came from another source, but they always say something about his um, um, active imagination or his, his uh, inner world. He's... he's um, putting it into a uh, into a book and into a form that he can serve as a um, uh, uh, source of memory. He can remember them. He can relate to them. It also puts them out of his head into a, onto a paper, and so he can move on. So it had several different functions. But um, basically, they describe or they depict um, his experience of his inner world. And I think that they're wondering if it's similar to the visuals and the symbolism used in BTS's, in their music videos and their stage performances and all the symbolism that's going on there. I haven't studied that. Um, I, um, I'd love to take a look at it sometime. I just haven't had time so far to do it. But I would imagine the, that the words, the text of the music and the songs they're singing uh, are intimately related with the uh, symbols that are being projected. That would be a very interesting thing to actually, maybe somebody will write a dissertation about that someday. That <laughs> something after, interesting to study. Yeah, and I think that after the record comes out, the CD, I don't know what to call it. I don't, we used to call it the album. Um, when that comes out on April 12th, I think it will be accompanied by some music videos as well. And, and then we'll get the translations of the lyrics and then we'll be able to, um, perhaps in the future discuss that and break that all down for you. And then our last question is from Miss Singularity who asks, I'd like to know if Dr. Stein has any suggestions on why BTS had the idea to use this concept of Jung's to convey to today's generation for their upcoming album. And would it be the same as he used to start to get interest in one? Well, um, I would love to be able to answer that question. That's my question too. How did they? How did they come upon Jung? How did this group come upon Jung? Uh, either some of them have been reading Jung. I know there are. There's a group of Jungian analysts in Korea. I know some of them. Uh, there's quite a well-known one named Professor Ree Buyong Ree, who is the founder of the Jung Institute in Seoul. And I wrote to him and asked him if he knew about the BTS group. And he said, oh, yes, uh, some of his patients are fans. 
And uh, he's done a lot of translating of Jung's works into, into Korean from the original German. He was very insistent that the translations uh, be from the original texts. And uh, he's, he's now an, uh, a senior member is, uh, of the psychiatry department at the University in Seoul, I believe, um, uh, maybe emeritus by now, and um, uh, would be possibly uh, the source uh, of um, BTS's um, contact with Jungian thought. Um, why they pick persona, I think it has to do with uh, really what R.M. was uh, talking about in his speech at the United Nations, that for young people, the persona is such a huge issue. It has to do with uh, identity, with a, with a, a social identity. And um, when that's a problem, it can lead to suicide. It can lead to uh, hopelessness, despair, drug addiction, all kinds of things. And I took his talk to be... Um, you know, for self-acceptance and self-love, counter to this uh, um, uh, terrible uh, um, mobbing that we see in, in social media and driving young people to despair and sometimes to suicide, um, all because you're not, you don't look right, you aren't thin enough, you aren't wearing the right clothes, you aren't of the right social class, you aren't cool, this or that. So this effort to love yourself and to accept yourself and not just adjust yourself to the persona expectations of the people around you uh, is such an important message that they're delivering to this this group of fans. I think that uh, that's why I imagine they, they picked that topic to begin to work on persona problems um, and, uh, and move towards self-acceptance and consciousness that persona is just a part of you it doesn't doesn't define you it isn't all of you it's it's a tool that you can use to make your way through the world and in society but uh, don't totalize it don't identify with it and might i just suggest that going back to what we were talking about before about the concept of projection that if you are criticized or judged or trolled that it is more about the person doing that than it is about you. In fact, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the person who's speaking those words. It's about exactly. Them. It's about, about them. You. And it's about their, often about their shadow, their envy. You know, envy is a, is a terrible, um, part of the shadow. We, we tend to deny it and suppress it and don't even know we have it. And it's worse if you don't know you have it than if you know you have it, because it really leads to these attacks on on other people that you, um, there's something about them that you envy and feel you can't have, and so you want to destroy them. And if they accept those projections, you know, they, uh, they feel worthless. Um, and so it's so important not to accept and fall for the projections that other people throw your way. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to say? I, I must say I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, BTS uh, does with this new album of theirs on the persona, and uh, perhaps having another conversation with you, Laura, after we get the lyrics. I asked 
the army uh, group if we could see their lyrics in advance and they said no there's no way to to get them before the album's released so we can't comment on that now but I'm really curious to know what what's going to be in there and how they're going to to take this and and I just want to compliment them uh, you know it isn't just uh, from what I from what I heard in this talk at the UN it isn't just that they're an entertainment group they have a real important mission that they're on and they're delivering their message to large numbers of people who otherwise uh, you know would be uh, without a compass without a map and um, I'm so glad that they're that they're doing this and that we can you know participate in in their um, noble cause I agree I agree very well said and they are embarking on a stadium tour here in the United States. I will be at their show here in Chicago, where I live, at Soldier Field on May 11th, and I am going to be meeting up with other members of the BTS Army, myself. I count myself as one of them. And Dr. Stein, we are going to FaceTime you um, from the stadium so that you can see all of the fans around me and BTS on the stage. So we look forward Fabulous. to that. Yes. And um, <laughs> we do look forward to speaking with you again and looking at this new record when it comes out and the message that they're, they're trying to send. So thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Stein. Thank you, Laura. On behalf of all of the listeners, I would again like to thank Dr. Stein for his time today. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung. That's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. So with special thanks to Liz Jefferson at Inner City Books, Carla at the BTS Army Help Center, and to the entire BTS Army, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.